Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Bill Patterson. Bill is a clinical hypnotherapist and psychotherapist based near Melbourne, Australia. His areas of particular interest include stress and anxiety management, phobias and addictions, along with chronic pain management. Bill is also a member and clinical supervisor with the Australian Hypnotherapist Association. Bill, thanks so much for coming on to today. Uh, my pleasure, Gary. Thank you for having me. So as I introduced you, you're a hypnotherapist and you're my first hypnotherapist on the show. And I'm really looking forward to this because I do have a particular interest in mind and mental health. And after speaking with one of your uh, colleagues or the, um, someone that you work with, uh, Dr. Daniel Lewis, he was on a previous episode, uh, I thought I have to get you on because you could definitely explain to listeners what is hypnotherapy, how it works, and compare it to some other modalities. So I'm so excited to get you on to today. And I was wondering to begin with then, to introduce listeners, if you could just give maybe a little definition of what is hypnotherapy? What is hypnotherapy? Mm -hmm. uh, is it, well, it's the use of hypnosis to help someone make a change. Basically, uh, it's a it's probably the original psychotherapy back in the time of Anton Mesmer in the eighteen hundreds, and uh, you had two choices in those days: you either went to the doctors for bloodletting and very painful medical treatment, or you might try hypnosis and uh, or mesmer mesmerism as it was called in those days and a lot of people gravitated uh, to mesmerism and uh, it, which was a form of psychotherapy of being able to manipulate or persuade or encourage someone to take on a new perspective for their mental health or well-being or physical ailments which uh, often uh, can be substantially improved through hypnotherapy. So I didn't. Yeah, I didn't actually. Yeah, sorry. So, no, I didn't quite re realize. So that's where the word mesmerized comes from. Yes, it was. Uh, it was a theory that uh, Mesmer had that by uh, magnetizing certain devices and bringing people closer to the magnetic force, and as he was making suggestions, they uh, realized miraculous cures. And he was eventually, he was debunked by the scientific community. Uh, one of them was Benjamin Franklin, as a matter of fact, the uh, American politician and uh, devotee in the sciences of those days. And uh, that was the end of Mesmer's career. But And then it sort of went dormant, but it wasn't until uh, the century after that I realised that it wasn't really uh, magnetism, but the power of the suggestion that was important. Okay, and that's what hypnosis is then, is the power of suggestion. Uh, hy hypnosis has the potential to, uh, uh, through the power of suggestion, make changes that uh, are still, in many situations, quite mysterious. So it has a sort of, sort of, a, sort of an aura about it, but then it's perhaps uh, some of that aura is lost to the stage hypnotist where you see spectacular instant change of personality or state. And, um, and so you 
it, it lacks a bit of credibility, I think, in terms of the serious clinical application of hypnosis. Mm. And I guess that is what uh, maybe a lot of people think of hypnosis as the stage performance side of the um, hypnosis versus what you do, which is a clinical hypnosis. Is it the same hypnosis? It is hypnosis as hypnosis. There's only one type of hypnosis. It's, a, it's an important question. Uh, it is, if you like, it's the same hypnosis. We, we all have this capacity, uh, almost all of us, uh, probably very um, minor exceptions, all have a capacity to go into tra tra uh, trance to alter our state of consciousness. And with the hypnosis, the 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 mind becomes far more sensitized to suggestion and uh, and this can be traced in in uh, these very sophisticated technologies now brain science with FM, fmri scanners and quantity veg the locations of the brain that respond to suggestion uh, have become quite activated in hypnosis where they may not in in ordinary conversation so there's, there's, a, there's quite a large body of evidence and, uh, and interest in hypnotherapy because it offers a lot of advantages that the um, orthodox medical model doesn't, particularly um, the non-use of medication that might have detrimental side effects. So it sounds like hypnosis lights up or unlocks different areas of your brain and that's what's occurring in, in this process, is that... There's, there's three. In order to describe hypnosis, there are there are three areas that are usually identified with um, the trance state. One is that uh, you'll be dissociated. That means if I said to you that um, you're probably not aware of your bottom as you're sitting on it until I mention it, uh, you are dissociated from that. You're your brain is filtering out a lot of inputs, millions of inputs every every second of your waking consciousness, and uh, this dissociation is is a is a significant factor in a hypnotic trance because you start to narrow your attention uh, generally inwardly to an inward world, and so you're very focused and, and the extraneous and the critical factors of your conscious thinking are far less involved. So it's dissociative. And, and then the second element is absorption, where you become so focused. Um, um, an uh, a very good example of that might be Aldous Huxley, the, the great literary giant of the last century who was very interested in consciousness and wrote books such as Doors of Perception and, and uh, Brave New World. And he could focus on an object in a room and, and everything else would disappear. That's how intense his concentration was. So that's, that's absorption. And there were, there were quite a number of famous meetings between him and another giant of hypnotherapy, Milton Erickson, uh, an American psychiatrist who spent almost his entire life in, uh, in psychiatry using hypnosis. And in fact, a very large body of hypnosis is named after Ericsson. So if you're an Ericksonian, it's understood that you follow the, the um, strategies that Milton Erickson employed. So that's, that's, that's that second element. And then the third element, that, uh, that's absorption. You become so focused inwardly that 
and nothing else matters. Uh, and the third element is your hypersuggestibility, the areas of the brain that uh, have been identified as uh, likely to be involved in in taking suggestions and influencing behaviour, altering our senses, uh, are, have all been observed to become far more activated in hypnosis. Whereas in uh, in a practice such as meditation or a, a more passive contemplative practice, that's that's quite different. And I was going to ask you that, yeah, what's because because what you're describing there, those three main elements that you are disassociated. You're, you're, you're focused and then you're it, the suggestibility. It sounds like the suggestibility element is what's different, a big difference between hypnosis and meditation, that because in meditation you're not susceptible to suggestion, are you? Well, uh, that's, uh, that's not the case either. I don't, I don't think. Now, it's, a, it's a difficult area, but a lot happens in the brain, a lot of, um, what should we say, brain coherence and restoration in the processes of the brain occurs in meditation when you're literally doing nothing. And I'm, and I'm talking about a practice where you're, you more or less become the observer of any phenomena, any activity. You're, an open meditation is one where you're just tracking all of your senses, the sensory input and being exposed to uh, that without any commentary or judgment or dialogue you're, you're just in this um, witnessing state if you like and and in that uh, it's been shown there's been some very interesting work in the last 20 years from uh, Richard Davidson in the United States uh, uh, showing that increased activity in the left prefrontal cortex from from sessions of meditation mindfulness meditation and the increase in positive uh, attribution in the brain is, is very significant because it has benefits for those who are suffering anxiety and, and in particular depression. Mm. So they've shown that people who learn to meditate and to focus in a mindful way uh, get, get measurable benefit from the practice. Okay, because so, that's another point after speaking with um, Dr. Lewis and because he's got the Pathways to Meditation Guide and I believe you worked in conjunction with him to, to develop that program. And after speaking with him there, it got me thinking, could you use hypnotherapy to help someone who's struggling to meditate as like a base kind of like because i did an experiment with neurofeedback training so i had the you know the, the cap on the head and went through all the training and i found doing that made it easier for me to meditate it's like it it, it you use as a foundation to lift your i don't know your mental health or like energy levels so that you you have that maybe awareness factor and i'm wondering it got me thinking too could you use hypnotherapy as as a way to help enhance your meditation uh yes you can uh, and i think it's it's an ideal way to fast track yourself into uh what we say it a a practice of meditation where you can feel confident that you're actually meditating mm. a lot of people will be sitting in a chair or in a lotus position or by the banks of a river and uh and walk away from that experience saying, well, I wonder if I was meditated. It seemed 
meditating, I, I seem to be thinking all the time, or I, I seem to be preoccupied with things. Uh, and, but one of the phenomenon in, in both meditation and when you are in a hypnotic trance is there are certain signs. For example, you uh, you have an alteration of proprioception. Your your limbs can feel heavier or lighter, or longer or shorter. You uh, a, a typical susceptibility test in in hypnosis is an arm levitation, where you suggest to the client that their hand might go up and then we'll just let it go down again and, and I wonder if it'll float up all by itself again and all of a sudden it's floating up. But the subject is not willing it or seemingly making it happen. It's happening involuntarily and that's clearly a trance phenomenon. Okay, and that's how you as the hypnotherapist could have one way of knowing the, the, the patient, the client, is definitely hypnotized. Because yes, it's uh, that's a, it's a it's an important question. It's it's help. It's really helpful to to first of all for yourself to know that the client's in trance, and then it's even more helpful for the client to know. And because they're still aware, the, the, you're going to be still aware. There are there are certain depths or states potentially where you you, it, you can easily develop spontaneous amnesia, and you can forget the content of the session. And, and that can be useful when you're dealing with difficult or distressing circumstances. That can be when you're when sort of some trauma appears, and it might be helpful to sort of separate that trauma at that particular time. And that person uh, is not going to be able to re- make a full resolution of that at that point. Mm-hmm. Although in hypnosis, it can be extremely helpful to defuse uh, trauma and to be able to help people through distressing circumstances. And so another common question uh, I see a lot when it comes to hypnotherapy is that can everyone be hypnotized? Yes, it's, it is a common question, and but there's a multitude of answers to it. <laughs> uh, look, there's a generally recognised uh, fact that most people can be hypnotised because as soon as you're daydreaming or as soon as you're preoccupied with something, uh, driving a car and then you wonder how you got to your destination or you you, you might be involved in a piece of music or a, a movie of some sort and you're so absorbed in that that, that nothing else around you is, is you have any awareness of anything in the peripheral, then you're, you're in that state of trance. You're, you're, you're in a state of absorbed altered state of consciousness and uh, that's that applies to most people but there is a quite a big distinction between the uh, the ability of individuals some people have uh, and then it becomes a trait some people are much more hypnotizable some people are highly hypnotizable others uh, it's hardly hypnotizable so there's a just sort of a spectrum but but two-thirds of the adult population can be hypnotised and in, in, in successfully to make a change, and almost all children are hypnotisable. Okay, so as adults, we seem to uh, filter that suggestion part, or the person trying to hypnotise us. But with kids, it's easy. You say it's easier to hypnotise a child. Yes, children seem to be more open and uh, perhaps uh, less pragmatic or 
or skeptical or questioning because as soon as you start questioning a chance and saying, oh, this is not real, well, you're, you're going to be right. It's not real. Hmm. Okay. And, and so that, that would be one of the blockers as to why someone struggles to get hypnotized because they they could be listening to the hypnotherapist and thinking, no, this is this is a load of junk or what's going on or they, that questioning, that that busy mind is actually blocking them from being hypnotized. So it sounds like it's easier to hypnotize a child. Yes. Uh, you know, there's, there's far less, uh, I guess, skepticism or pragmatism. There's, uh, and I think there's, in our younger years, we're, we're far more engaged with our imagination. We're far more perhaps uh, absorbed by, as we're learning new information, as we're building up our neural structures, which are, are still growing until about 17 at an astonishing rate that we're, we're taking in so much. A childlike wonder or, or curiosity is, a, is obviously a, a good basis for hypnosis. And so when you were mentioning earlier, I think a lot of people can relate to that where they're driving to work and they've got a 40-minute drive or an hour and a half drive and it just they, there's a large portion on the highway or motorway they just don't remember because they were so engaged or focused on something else. And you're yeah. saying that's a little bit like being hypnotized. Is it because you're in that trance-like state? Well, you're in that very absorbed state and even more readily identifiable uh, absorption would be devices such as phones and computers and, and television, but particularly devices because you can see people everywhere now around the world walking across streets or up footpaths and uh, with their heads down and focused and probably uh, lost a considerable capability of judging time and and alerting themselves to look up. So, you know, we're seeing a, a new era in absorption oh that's interesting so yeah when people are using their phones they're actually in a slight trance-like state yes yes okay and um how long does it take to become hypnotized so you're saying that two-thirds of people can become hypnotized and given some examples of what it's like in that trance-like state but does it take a long time to hypnotize someone? Uh, I, I know this is probably going to be a spectrum again but um generally yeah does it take hours or minutes I'd be interested. It's it's uh, it's usually uh, someone who's highly hypnotizable. For example, uh, it can in less than a minute, thirty seconds, and you can use a rapid induction, and someone will go straight into trance. Wow, that fast! Yes, and and they have that ability to switch, and that's what you'll see in a stage hypnosis. Have you seen a stage hypnosis program where the the stage hypnotist will invite members of the audience to come up mm. and so there's a stampede for the audience from people who would like to be noticed and um, which the hypnotist knows and uh, and makes uh, almost guarantees the success of the show because the people are first of all motivated so one of the factors in hypnosis is to be motivated to be hypnotized you you if you're uncertain or if you're fearful or if you're doubtful and you you don't establish a confidence uh, that it's you're going to have some degree of control, then uh, you're going to be very difficult to hypnotise. But the people who rush up on the stage are motivated. And then he'll give them a rapid induction. He'll get, Well, he'll give them a, a susceptibility test. He'll see whether who can be hypnotised and who won't be. So he might 
uh, say, you know, in a moment I'm going to snap my fingers or count one, two, three, and and then you'll go straight to sleep and he'll shout the word sleep or emphasise the word sleep or, or tap someone's shoulder and they'll go to sleep. And these are rapid inductions. These are people that are genuinely going into hypnosis. But of those people on the stage, a percentage of them won't be hypnotised. They'll be still be quite self-conscious. They'll be fully aware of their surroundings. They'll be either pretending to comply with the hypnotist instructions or they'll break out with a bit of self-consciousness and find themselves wandering back from the stage down to their seat or the hypnotist will invite them to return to the audience. So he will know that five or six people out of that group of 20 perhaps are hypnotisable and then that's where the show takes off because he's he's confident of working with that cohort or he or she. Mm-hmm. There are very good female stage hypnotists who understand these processes. But what's happening to the subject, of course, is they're thinking, well, he, he or she wants me to act like a chicken uh, and they can start flapping their arms about and clucking like a chicken around the stage, something they wouldn't normally do, and their friends would be most impressed because they haven't seen them act like this before, but they're actually disinhibited, so they they lose a degree of self-consciousness. So they don't mind acting like a chicken. It's not a problem. They're not laughing because they're in an altered state. Mm -hmm. So that impresses the audience because they know something's actually happened, can't explain what. And the hypnotist knows how to exploit this and make it humorous and entertaining. So that's the rapid induction method that you were talking about there to get people to be hypnotized quickly on stage. But now you were also saying that there's people where they struggle to get hypnotized. Um, can How does it work there? Are, are you still able to work with those people, but it just takes weeks or days or months or, or like a training process? How, do, how does that work? Well, this is an interesting question because it's it's not really a struggle. It's just the characteristic or the uh, trait of that individual, uh, the hypnotizability that determines uh, how you approach it. Now, a lengthy, long-winded, incredibly drawn-out relaxation technique may not be appropriate for many people at all, but that's it's sometimes seen as hypnosis is relaxation, but it's far from that. It, you're activating a, quite an intense level of internal awareness. But there are some techniques that are very useful to engage people in trance if, uh, if a rapid induction isn't called for. Uh, and that's you, you can uh, use complex semantics to confuse someone into a state of trance so that the conscious mind becomes overwhelmed with competing ideas, a sort of a, a positive cognitive dissonance, if you like. And and so the, the subject gives up trying to work it all out and, and then becomes absorbed in the trance experience. Or you can utilise, and this was, a, this was the approach that Milton Erickson took his life, he... He studied his patients very closely and used whatever they presented to him for their benefit. For example, um, if uh, he had a young boy who couldn't control his temper and was stamping his foot a lot, this was a famous case study of his, he asked the boy to spend the next 10 minutes in his room stamping his foot. 
until the boy got a bit sick of it and then went straight into a, a nice, nicely relaxed trance state and Ericsson was able to bring some ideas to the boy that could sort of help him overcome his anger. So the utilisation of the characteristics of your of your client, patient or subject. And uh, there's, there's a whole lot of techniques which uh, come out of a sort of a, a, a creative um, way of um, helping someone into a trance state. Um, as soon as you've got someone focusing on the in the present moment on their breathing, for example, which is uh, is probably the most common uh, meditation object uh, when you're teaching meditation, you look to use the breath most usually as your focusing device. But it can be anything. Uh, in the, the people I work with who have chronic pain, um, we can actually use in many instances the pain itself as a focus. So it's how you, how you use a focus. Uh, you can count down, you can uh, climb or descend ladders and steps and lifts and elevators and sort of suggest the idea of a depth, a greater depth, but ultimately it's a, it's really a switching from your conscious mind into something that's far more occupied with a, a, a smaller area of interest, okay. in other words, concentration. And if I wanted to get more benefit, because I'm just thinking if I wanted to try hypnotherapy, but I'm worried that I could be wasting my time or money because I, I it's hard for me to be hypnotized, um, is there anything me as a client could do to help you as a therapist to make sure I get hypnotized faster. I'm just wondering, some people might think, do I need to practice meditation or do I need to take some sort of pill or nootropic or something to make sure that I get the best out of this experience? I, I think the best preparation is to provide as much information to the therapist as you can that's relevant to the problem that you're wanting to change. And that, that it will include the background what led up to it, how, how long you've had the situation. That sort of information, the information gathering is, is, is quite important. And then you can start, the therapist can then start to look at the word structures that the, the client's using, the, the linguistics, uh, 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 the semantics are very influential for how our brain reacts to um, our various senses. So you can... You can use that quite effectively with that sort of information. But there's not really much, um, there may be for some, I don't know, but uh, not really much scope for uh, sitting at home rehearsing before you go to make sure you get the most out of the session. Okay. I think really it's just, just bring your life into the session. And if you feel that it's it's not for you or you can't be hypnotised or you you told the hypnotist you were in such a wonderful trance but when you went home you didn't think anything happened, then um, that's not unusual. But quite often you'll find something does happen uh, or even when you think it didn't, it did. So it's this, there's so many nuances or mysteries to this, uh, this field that um, no two days are the same for a mm. therapist. So we've, we've talked about um, what it is, how easy or not easy it is to get people into a hypnotic state. What are... Let's go into some of the benefits of hypnotherapy then and hypnosis. Um, so this is beyond the stage stuff now, other than having a good laugh for a little moment of time. A common one 
as you, I've, I know hypno, hypnosis for is like smoking cessation. So to stop people from smoking and then, uh, dealing with, uh, pain, as you mentioned too, it, are those some of the, the common reasons why someone would want to see a, a hypnotherapist? I, I, I think the, the, uh, smoking is most commonly associated with hypnosis, although the, the studies show that it's, it's possibly no more successful than some of the other medical approaches, uh, or just helping someone who can, who's given up a few times and relapsed to uh, just continue to persevere. Uh, it's, it's, it is a very difficult addiction. And there are certainly a cohort of people who can come to hypnosis and never smoke again. And, uh, I think every hypnotherapist will be always buoyed by that. But I think the, the biggest issue for hypnotherapy is stress, management of stress, because it, it's such a fast and powerful way of switching the autonomic nervous system into a more parasympathetic response where you're, you're going to be almost eliminating all of the, uh, the highly active stress hormones, the cortisol and adrenaline and the flight and threat and fear hormones uh, completely subside in a very, very, um, very short amount of time in a, in a, in a session of clinical hypnosis. So that's, that's a very important starting point because it, it will generally be at the basis of whatever's wanting to be changed. So, so it is very good for stress management. I mean, that's, as you said, so many of us have different levels of stress, but if you, if someone is listening and they feel they can't get their stress levels under control or panic, um, if it gets to that stage, then hypnotherapy is an option for them. It's, it's, it's a very effective tool, particularly for anxiety states and, and, and panic disorders, which are triggered by, you know, uh, constant anxiety. Uh, they, but what I'm getting at here is that hypnosis has a way of being able to invoke very quickly, uh, uh, releasing and letting go. And you'll find in a session that for 40 or 50 minutes of the session, the, the client is, is deeply relaxed. And this, this allows for a considerable amount of recovery for the body from the constrictions of uh, whatever's happening with stress. Uh, when you're producing cortisol, you, all your blood vessels will constrict, your heart rate goes up. Your breathing is far more rapid and shallow. All of these symptoms reverse in hypnosis. So it's very common for people to, uh, if you measure blood pressure before you come into a session and when you leave, you'll see an, a noticeable difference, a, no, a noticeable balancing or lowering of your blood pressure. Well, that's fantastic. So you've also just got me thinking when you were talking about traumas and anxieties, um, how maybe people don't know how to talk about it with traditional therapy. They they struggle to verbalize the issue. When someone goes through a hypnotherapy session and you're dealing with a phobia or a panic attack, an anxiety issue, are you still requiring the client to have to speak about it? Is just that you've lowered the inhibition to talk about it or that they would know what to talk about? Is that how they end up dealing with it? Uh, it, if, if uh, hypnosis is often used for regression to help take someone back to distressing circumstances, particularly if they were victims of some sort of abuse. And with victimization, there's often a, a natural tendency of the, the brain or the mind to, um, partition that off so that it's, it's not going to affect everyday life. But some people can carry that trauma, uh, 
into their adult life and, and affects them very negatively. So, so there is something rele- uh, relieving and cathartic in being able to acknowledge that, and there's but there's a fine line between that and re-traumatization. Hmm. So, PTSD is a is a difficult one, but I can't imagine anyone overcoming uh, trauma without going through the process and experiencing it. Okay. And I, I know from my own personal case in, in trauma that uh, by repeating the circumstances over and over again, I, I, I was able to diffuse the trauma that I experienced and, and that, that, that was putting the theory to the test, so to speak. So regression can be very helpful to, to go back, but you, you can't just leave it hanging in the air. There needs to be a process of integration. The stronger components of someone's personality or states can, can take over and uh, be more nurturing. Uh, compassion is a very um, important part of uh, self-healing and ego strengthening, building up your sense of self so that you can see that you're worthwhile. So, These so, are all components of working with with trauma, and uh, and there are many many more approaches, but hypnosis is very effective at going into it. And uh, so, my one of my very first clients twenty five years ago who uh, came to see me for she couldn't quite pinpoint what the problem was, but it was affecting her in her adult life. And in fact, she was she was um, suffering from anorgasmia. She she couldn't. Uh, reached sexual climax in a relationship with her husband and she felt the marriage was in peril. And she asked my wife if I could help her. And my wife said, yes, Bill can help you. And I had no idea what anorgasmia was. But uh, strangely enough, in that session when she came to see me, uh, a lot of these past memories came up, some which she hadn't consciously remembered for almost her entire life. And... uh, and she was able to get a, a sort of a realisation of why certain things happened. It was to do with her, her mother and her mother's instability as a, an inpatient in a psychiatric ward and, and an attempted suicide. There were some very traumatic and difficult circumstances for her as a very young child. And uh, strangely enough, this had connected to her senses of an adult uh, in her marriage and... Um, in some way or another, and uh, it, she rang my wife a week or two later to say, uh, just to tell Bill it happened. And I'm assuming that she was freed from the restrictions that she'd had previously. Wow. But it's a, that was a fairly dramatic uh, transformation for her. But it came about by that that catharsis, that uh, that huge um, coming, uh, the bringing forward of the uh, the the painful and distressing events which had sort of been pushed aside or suppressed, I guess, in some way. Yeah, and that's that word suppression there because that's what I'm thinking about. So they they come to you saying they have this issue which has got nothing to do with their childhood and then you put them through the hypnotherapy um, session and you put them into a state of hypnosis. Do they then just reveal this or is it that you have a template that you always t- take someone back to their childhood years and just sort of probe and ask certain questions to see if something is revealed well I, my way of thinking that would that would be quite inappropriate to to take every client back to their childhood to see if there's something originating event now there may well be for all of us some originating event for some characteristic of our, our life or our personality but 
uh, if if some if if there's a blockage, if there's something that's really uh, presenting a, a challenge in someone's life, and they're, they're wanting and they're willing to go back, I'll, I'll certainly help them. But and there's many ways of doing that without verbalising it. It doesn't have to be articulated to a therapist. You can there's a process where you can allow the client to do this completely subconsciously and work through it and the, the, the content of those memories doesn't have to be brought forward into the conscious mind. It just seems to help in, for, in certain cases. Um, other cases you might say, well, when you have this particular problem, where do you feel it in your body? And you, uh, Typically someone might feel it in uh, the way they clench their jaw or the, a constriction in their chest and so in hypnosis you go back to the very first time you ever felt that constriction in your chest and and that regression can sometimes swiftly take that person back to a, a significant event which once appraised and evaluated can be liberating from their, from for their particular situation mm. so talking about all this regression into the um the hurtful areas of our lives um as you said there's a fine line between acknowledging those events and then actually re-traumatizing the, the person. Is that one of the risks involved in hypnosis is that if the, the, where we need the therapist, the person who's doing the hypno hypnosis on us to know where that line is to not sort of cause that re-traumatization issue? Yeah, I, I think the, the key, to, key to that issue, and that, that could be true of any therapy uh, if you're uncovering... Uh, trauma from the past is to just to ensure that the client is comfortable with the pace that you're, you're approaching. You know, uh, for, for example, I had a client um, last year who came for eight to, or ten consecutive sessions and, and nothing was obvious. I want to go back and find out what had happened. And she, she had felt that uh, one of her family members had molested her. But... Um, and we had eight attempts to go back there and there was nothing. And she said, well, I can't say anything, there's nothing. Uh, you know, I've got this feeling that I'm sure there's something there. And then in the in that uh, final session, she went to an event that was completely unrelated to the one that she thought was the original set of circumstances. And um, it was a, a very nasty sexual assault on a... On a and a picnic somewhere and, and totally different people that, that weren't connected with her family at all. And she was quite devastated by that memory and she was able to identify um, who that perpetrator was who had since died. But um, she had spoken with other, uh, other friends to find out the identity of that person after all those years. But what was interesting is that um, she no longer had that fear or concern that it was something was wrong within her family and that was that was very helpful for her okay so that was the liberation that she got there is actually thinking well knowing that what this feeling was real something was there there was this memory and that yeah. it was and then unlocking that blockage she had with her, her family which would have been yeah. good for her and 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 she's she's reported that um she's you know that she's uh feeling a lot more happy and confident in, in her relationship. She was socially phobic. She was um, an intelligent, well-presented woman who had lived in, with very 
difficult memories or difficult vague impressions of her past and um, that seems to be all over now. Okay. And so we've talked a lot about uh, helping clients with traumas and phobias and anxieties. For someone who feels, hey, you know, I think I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me that I'm trying to particularly address with, would you see any benefit for someone doing hypnotherapy for sort of executive function uh, just to be a better person um, in some way? You know, uh, if someone runs their own business, they, they want to have good mental health and good mental strength, um, would you say... I guess I've, maybe I've answered my own question here because you talked about stress management. Uh, even someone who doesn't have an issue, they they could somehow benefit from hypnotherapy just for general stress management. And if if so, in that yeah. case, um, what I'm trying to think of is practically: is it just like I could come for one 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 session a month or one session every two months or something, just to sort of top up my brain health in a way? Is that an option? That's a very typical presentation. People will can go to hypnotherapy for performance improvement and uh, whether it's uh, public speaking it might start as fear of public speaking but then to develop a competency perhaps or they can unlock some of the uh, fears and inhibitions that they have and uh, find more of their human side which can help with their presentation or sporting you know I've had quite a number of sporting people who can be helped through just focusing their mind to, to stay present and get into the zone in in these elite sports is a critical factor. Almost every excellent um, uh, sporting uh, uh, character is is looking at these opportunities of strengthening their mental capacities too. And uh, it, it, uh, a good example of that is Jason Day, the uh, Australian golfer, and he sets himself up before every shot. He's, he's, he was number one in the world for a couple of years ago and he's now uh, getting coming back with some more success. But he's been very consistent with staring at the ball, closing his eyes, visualising where the ball's going to go, visualising the ball coming back to right in front of him, and, and then he hits it. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a process of self-hypnosis. Um, it's, it's been well well practiced with uh, marathon runners, triathlons, cyclists. You get into the zone, so your body is can you can optimize the performance of your body by uh, reducing the inhibition or the limitations that you um, you believe your body is signaling, and you can find extraordinary extra reserves. And so, so what you're talking about there sounds like the flow state, which athletes yes, try yes. to get into. And so is flow state a state of self-hypnosis? Uh, well, that's, uh, I don't know if I could say it's a, it's the same as hypnosis. I think you, it's like meditation. Is meditation the same as hypnosis? Uh, they show that there are varying regions of the brain and, and distinctions between meditation and mindfulness or hypnosis. Uh, so, But I'm not sure about flow. And I, I've experienced that myself in, in my younger years in sport, get, getting into a zone once or twice only. I was certainly never capable of doing it very often. But I could feel it, and, and it, was, um, it was quite euphoric. There's no, no pain. You're just totally in another world and, and there's no limitation. It doesn't matter what happens, you can't be stopped. It's just a total 
absorption. So it it has all the hallmarks of being in a hypnotic state, but I, I don't know whether it is. Okay. And um, so just to come up to the last little bit here that we've got with time-wise now, um, are there any other myths in hypnosis you would like to address for people in, who are now interested in doing it for different reasons, be it dealing with a trauma, a phobia, or even just uh, performance training? Uh, well, it's a, one of the biggest myths, I think, with, uh, and we've already covered it, with hypnosis is that it's, that it's not a mind control. It, you can't be controlled by someone else's mind. Um, under severe circumstances, there is a potential to be controlled if you're totally helpless and, and you're fearful of someone who's showing aggression. Um, you, you could be controlled without question. And I think they showed this in, uh, I don't know if you read that book, The Manchurian Candidate by the prisoners of war in the Korean War, who were all brainwashed for three or four years. And then when they came back to their home country, they, uh, they overcame that brainwashing over a number of years and, um, regained their own senses. So this, there seems to be a, we're building networks all the time of our perceived reality. And it's unlikely that we can be influenced, but quite a different thing to be controlled by someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, people think uh, they may not come out of hypnosis. They might stay in hypnosis and uh, not be able to get out of it. might be stuck. And that's that's not possible either because it's just like a sleep state. You you go through a period of time when you, you can be absorbed, but you're there's some signalling in the brain that will bring you back to conscious awareness. You'll start to produce cortisol or some alerting hormone and uh, you're back again. So you but are always not, in control. You're always in control. But uh, even when you, you won't come out of a trance, but I've had clients who refuse to come out of a trance. They They will sit there in the chair with their eyes closed and I, I've got to – Beautiful count up to three and then open your eyes and you'll be wide awake, feeling refreshed, looking forward to the rest of the day and uh, to no avail. You're still lying comatose in the chair. Then I, I count to 10. Uh, I've even got to 20 at, at the odd occasion. And then I discovered there's a, a very quick way of being able to wake them up because you, you can't, it's, it's not helpful to touch a client while they're asleep or in a, hypnotic state so i tell them look they can stay there as long as they like but uh they will have to pay another session fee and that somehow that prompts them to come back to consciousness very quickly <laughs> so that, that's a great tip for any uh up-and-coming hypnotherapist there use that one from bill well yes yeah I think others have used it too i think yeah <laughs> But it's, it's a strange phenomenon. No one wants to come out of trance. It's, it's a very peaceful, um, absorbing experience. Mm, I can imagine. Well, I've, I've learned so much about hypnotherapy today, hypnosis. And from what I can understand after listening with you today, it, it is a good thing to do just to even try out um, for a spectrum of reasons uh, for and, and no matter what age, um, it would definitely be an interesting experience. And I hope one day I can try hypnotherapy because I'd just like to see what it feels like and maybe see what comes out of it too. I, uh, just that inquisitive mind of my own. And I can see 
health benefits, mental health um, benefits coming from it too. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all that information today. Um, if anyone wants to follow you, um, find out more about your services, anything like that, do you have any links that you'd like to share for, for listeners? Well, I have, I have a website, uh, which is very simply mind body solutions, all one word, .com.au. So uh, that's got all the information about the work that I do. Um, Gary, I just want to say if you're, you're sort of threatening or sort of suggesting you might go and uh, try out hypnosis, but uh, my recommendation is if, if, you, if anyone wants to live a better life and a more connected life, then it's, it's, it's quite worthwhile to explore not only hypnosis but the, uh, the exploding ubiquitous mindfulness and meditation movement all around the world and uh, there are so many apps now so many courses so many possibilities but it's it's a very difficult thing to uh, put yourself in a position either to meditate without being distracted and defaulting back to your normal levels of distraction which of course are dominated now by screens and we're losing out of reading books of connecting with nature and connecting with communities and this is this is very clearly happening uh, everywhere you look and so we may have social media and connections but all of this electronic digital connection is is nothing compared to face to face and and being out there in the real world and i'm hoping that um, people who haven't tried or haven't explored the potential of meditation and don't judge it as a, a new age thing or a hippie thing to do because it's got substantial medical evidence behind it now. Um, really consider taking on a course to do training to uh, help themselves so they can see information about that on my website. And also, um, as I mentioned earlier in the interview with Dr. Daniel Lewis, you did that that meditation guide, uh, part of that too. That's another option, isn't it, if they want yeah. to download something? Yes, yes, yes. They've got a huge amount of re resources on his website uh, on all the studies and and techniques and and all sorts of approaches that can be helpful. Okay, fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much, Bill, for sharing all of that information. And yes, I won't, um, as you said, just threaten to do it. I will actually take action and uh, and do oh, it. Good, excellent. Okay, thank you, Gary. Good on you. <laughs>